Well, in our gospel reading today from Luke 10 2, Jesus looked out into a broken world. And what he saw was that there was more work to be done than people to do it. And so with a sense of urgency, he calls us to pray, to ask the Lord of the harvest, who is Jesus himself, to send out more laborers. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. So Jesus doesn't tell us to stress. He doesn't tell us to like pass around the sign-up sheet for leadership. He tells us to pray, and he says that the Lord of the harvest is the one who will appoint and employ and deploy the leaders that his church needs. So I think that's a good way for us to start this morning. Amen? Amen. So please pray with me as we, as we talk for a moment to the Lord of the harvest. In fact, a good practice might be to set a, an alarm on your phone for 10.02 in the morning so that you remember at 10.02, I'm going to pray for God to raise up leaders into his harvest field. A little past 10.02, but we'll go for it. <laughs> Father in heaven, we pray that even now, your son Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, would be sending laborers into the harvest field. Call out to human hearts this morning through my preaching, through the preaching at many churches this morning, Lord, through evangelistic activity on the highways and byways. Father, call ministers into your church Call more laborers into your harvest field, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been going through this series on 1 Timothy, and we come today to chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, which gives a description of ordained ministry in the church. So I thought it would be worthwhile to share a bit of my own story, not so much about the season when I discerned a call to be a priest, but instead when I sort of first opened myself up to the possibility on accident. I was about 16 years old, and I wasn't even going to church yet. In fact, I was still several years away from understanding what it might mean for me to follow Jesus as his disciple. And I remember my family got a phone call that my dear friend Kenny was in a car accident. Now you have to understand that Kenny was the kind of kid that was like in our driveway every day playing basketball. He would show up as soon as we would sit down for dinner. In fact, my parents would joke that he knew what time we started dinner. And so he would show up so that he could make himself a plate, but they didn't mind, we loved Kenny. And so when we got this call from, the, uh, from his mother, we all just piled into the car. We didn't know what to expect. In fact, I remember on the way to the hospital, I was joking with my sisters in the car because I didn't really understand how serious it was. And we got into the waiting room and we heard the news that um, Kenny, um, to avoid a head-on collision on the highway, had to swerve quickly. His car toppled over many times. He had to be airlifted to the hospital in a helicopter, and they were in the middle of performing an emergency surgery on his heart through his back, which I'd never heard of before. And the doctor said there was probably about a 90% chance that he wouldn't make it, and if he did, they would likely have to amputate his arm. And I remember when I heard this news, I was just in shock. 
and I just immediately withdrew from the room and I just went for a walk. I didn't know where I was headed, but I somehow made my way into the midst of like the mulch and shrubbery of like the hospital flower bed, someplace quiet where I was on my own. And I remember I prayed and I cried out to the Lord. And I made in my own naivete this sort of vow to God. I said, God, if you will save Kenny, if you will save his life, I will dedicate my life to you. And I don't really think I knew what I was saying, um, but I figured it probably involved like an openness to at least thinking about maybe being something crazy like a priest or something like that. <laughs> and um, and uh, now you might think, okay, well, that settled the matter. That's, that's kind of how Taylor opened up his heart and how he got his call. But um, you would be mistaken, at least from a human point of view, because... Um, I sort of buried that vow for about 16 years. And indeed, the Lord did answer my prayer, and Kenny survived. And miraculously, they didn't have to amputate his arm. But I didn't remember that vow I made to the Lord. <laughs> there remained this cloudy thing in, in deep, you know, hidden deep within my subconscious for about another 16 years. When right before I was about to be ordained as a priest in God's church, the Lord brought it back to my mind. And it resurfaced just before my ordination, that vow that I've made. And even now, I can't help but feel like somehow, mysteriously, sovereignly, lovingly, the Lord held me to it. Would you please grab a Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy 3 on page 992 of your pew Bible. And in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to, be an office, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I think this is kind of a shocking statement. It's shocking because it portrays pastoral ministry as something that might actually be desirable <laughs> and not as a kind of death <laughs> to all things, which is probably how I did view it at 16 years old. And it's also shocking because this verse sounds so unspiritual, doesn't it? Surely a would-be pastor would be a humble person, not someone who <coughs> aspires to ecclesiastical leadership, right? It's like the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Amen? I would rather be a doorkeeper. And so there's, there's no place for entitlement in the household of God. Right, some of you, some of you even students, you know, you might feel like, oh, when am I going to get to be a small group leader? When is, when is somebody going to ask me to step up into this role? And we need to have this posture that says, hey, it, it, no matter what my role is, if I'm here to be a doorkeeper, if I'm here to set up chairs, if I'm here to greet people, if I'm here to pass things out, whatever, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. There's no place for entitlement in ministry. We are blood bought. And so there's no place for entitlement. But Paul also wants us to know that it's a noble desire to want to do great things for God and his people. And so the desire to be a pastor, the desire to be an overseer or, or a deacon for that matter, 
can be a holy aspiration. It can and often does come from a good place. And I want to say this morning that I think there are several people in this church who are called. I think there are several people in this church that are called to be pastors and several people in this church that are called to be deacons and that Jesus wants to put you to work in his harvest field. And if that's you, I pray that Jesus would use this message to stir up this noble desire within you, that you would aspire to be raised up in ordained ministry in this church. This church incarnation has never been and, and maybe never will be rich in terms of money, but I've always said from the beginning, there is an embarrassment of riches in this church in terms of godly, committed, gifted leaders. And I mean it, and I don't even think we've begun to be empowered and mobilized by the Lord in the ways that we need to be. I mean, so many of us are just still on the sideline. But I believe that many people in this church are called, called to spend the best years of their lives making squat, chasing sheep and losing sleep. In the harvest fields of the Lord. Amen. Talk to me, saints. Now, some of you will, of course, ask, well, what, what about me? What if I'm not called to be ordained? What if I'm called to be a godly doctor or a teacher or a politician or a mother in the Lord? And if that's your calling, then I will be the first to say amen and cast no shame on you as if that kind of calling is somehow less spiritual because, guys, that's rubbish. We all have to do what God has called us to do. And all Christians are called to ministry in one way or another to steward the gifts that God has given us for the sake of his kingdom. We've all been included into the royal priesthood of believers by virtue of our baptism. So no one's allowed to say, I'm not called. Or because I'm not ordained, I don't need to take my own ministry seriously. I don't need to be serious about stewarding the gifts that God has given me because, brothers and sisters, that's also rubbish. Jesus said the sons and daughters of this age are more wise in their worldly dealings than the sons and daughters of the kingdom. Let that not be said of us, incarnation. So I want us to press into 1 Timothy 3 this morning because there's a sense in which I think gaining a deeper understanding of ordained ministry can give us all a deeper sense of clarity about our own call. Now the Anglican Church has always emphasized the threefold order of ordained ministry. So there are bishops who supervise and mobilize the church on a macro level. There are pastors or presbyters um, that teach and govern the local flock. And there are deacons who serve and assist the presbyters. And this delineation is very ancient, going back at least to Ignatius of Antioch in 110 AD. And it quickly became the norm in all churches throughout Christendom. Another example is Polycarp, who was appointed by the apostles to be the bishop of Smyrna and was widely known to have been mentored directly by the apostle John. So there's a sort of seamlessness to this. 
Now, some will say, well, that's fine, but that's Christian history. That's not Scripture. Why are there only two offices mentioned in 1 Timothy? Isn't this threefold shape a later sort of intrusion back on biblical order? Far from it. Think about it like this. What if you got a hold of a letter from a school superintendent to a school principal about the requirements for a good teacher and a good teacher's aid? Now, wouldn't it be foolish when we get a hold of that letter to forget the fact that the superintendent and the principal exist? Mm-hmm. That's what's going on in this letter, right? Because there are people like Titus and Timothy, people that are put in positions not as pastors, but as overseers of pastors, as pastors of pastors who discipline, who check the doctrine, who ordain and appoint leaders. And then there are apostolic men behind them like Paul and Peter and Barnabas that are appointing these things. As Michael Ramsey puts it, there is no church mentioned in the New Testament that does not own the authority of an apostle or an apostolic man who represents the wider general church. So when we look at the offices of the church, this threefold offices, which, which is established firmly just a few decades after the apostles die out, we need to recognize it's only the terminology that's changed, not the shape of the church. The shape of the church has remained the same. This term overseer, episkopos in Greek, which in 1 Timothy and Acts 20 applied primarily to pastors in their overseeing role of the flock. It was, it, was, it was a fitting title. It applied to them in their overseeing role of the local congregation. It begins to, just a few decades later, be applied to bishops in their overseeing role of the regional church. But either way, whatever titles we use, the important thing to note is that this threefold shape of the church has remained the same from the time of the apostles on down through Timothy and Titus, Ignatius and Polycarp, and all the way down to today. Now, I want to say as a caveat that this doesn't mean that churches that don't organize themselves in this way, that they, the churches that have sort of a different, what we'd call a different polity, whether Baptist church or Presbyterian church, it doesn't mean that they're any less the church. In fact, they might know and love Jesus on a deeper level than we do. And that's more important than any aspect of church government. Amen. But the point is that this threefold order is rooted in scripture and in history. Friends, I challenge you on this point. And if you want to talk about it more uh, about this or or some other things I'm going to say later in this sermon, I just encourage you, please come talk to me. Uh, bring your questions, thoughts, comments, mad rants, and prophetic utterances, and let's talk about these things. All right. Now, as we turn our attention back to 1 Timothy 3, I think we'll notice three things right away. First, that God desires His church to have appointed leaders. Now, this, this, this point is so obvious, it's easy to miss the significance of it. That in the midst of the priesthood of all believers, which, by the way, is a term that we get from Exodus, where there was actually a Levitical priesthood as well. But in the midst of this priesthood of all believers, which is affirmed in Peter's epistle, God has called some, but not all, to be ordained leaders in the church. Second, that the role of pastor, at least the role of pastor, seems to be restricted to men only. I'll return to this topic later and also make a case for women deacons. Third, 
there are necessary qualifications for both pastors and deacons. And this last point is really what this section is all about, laying out the necessary character and competencies for pastors and deacons in the church. And I think as we look at 1 Timothy 3, maybe the most striking thing is how much more Paul has to say about character than competency, right? And from this fact, I think we can infer that it's actually much more important for pastors and deacons to be Christ-like than it is for them to be competent. As Sarah said, how will we know that we're in the household of God unless the leaders of the household reflect our Lord? Now, I'm not saying that competency is unimportant or that uh, pastors and bishops shouldn't get evaluations. But when it comes to Christian leadership, the fruit of the Spirit always takes priority over the gifts of the Spirit. How often have we erred on this point as a church? We vault people into leadership roles because they have talent or personal charisma, but they've never been tested. They've never been discipled. That stuff takes too long. And so when a leader has anger problems and a shallow prayer life, we vault them into leadership in the church. And it comes back to bite us in the rear a decade or two later when we find out there's a sex scandal or there's money missing. Friends, this is a tragedy. And while it's not completely unavoidable in this fallen world, Paul gives us these requirements as safeguards against this sort of thing. Now, this long list of virtues that we see here in 1 Timothy 3 doesn't mean that your ministers will be sinless. And you guys know that well because, you know, (laughs) me, but (laughs) maybe you'll be a part of a flock one day and you'll wonder that. But there's only ever been one sinless shepherd of God's flock. What this passage does mean is that pastors and deacons are to be manifestly mature in their walk with Christ and willing to repent of every known sin. That's what this phrase, above reproach, means. As John Stott puts it, self-mastery makes self-giving possible. If our lives are a hot mess, how are we going to serve other people? So what are the other character requirements for pastors and deacons? Well, there are many listed here, and since both offices are rooted in the character of Christ, it's not surprising that they overlap to a large extent. For example, a pastor cannot be a lover of money, verse 3, and likewise a deacon should not be greedy for dishonest gain, verse 8. So if a potential pastor or deacon is not characterized by simplicity and generosity in the way that they conduct their finances, they should not be considered candidates for holy orders. Another point of overlap is in regard to alcohol. For pastors, it says that they should not be a drunkard. And for deacons, it says they should not be addicted to much wine. So clearly, an officer in the church should not be somebody who lacks self-control when it comes to alcohol. Paul also insists that both pastors and deacons must manage their household well, adding for a pastor with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Overall, this principle is summarized in verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So if this is an essential component of ordained ministry, to manage your household well, to be a husband of one wife, 
then it means that pastors and deacons are called first, first and foremost to love their own families, not to sacrifice their families on the altar of ministry. Some of you may remember the example of Eli the priest in 1 Samuel chapter 3. He taught the young prophet Samuel how to hear the voice of the Lord. He was not without knowledge. But he, he taught him that only to realize that the prophecy that Samuel was hearing from God was a prophecy against his own household. Because his sons had been blaspheming God. And it says that Eli the priest, quote, failed to restrain them. And because of this, Eli's long tenure as a priest ended in shame. And later on, sadly, Samuel's own life would follow the pattern he learned from Eli. Samuel's own sons, quote, did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice, 1 Samuel 8, 3. And because of this, it's because of this that the people of Israel asked for a king in the first place. So Eli and Daniel's stories stand as warnings to all ordained ministers not to, not to sacrifice their families on the altar of ministry. Please pray for John and I. This is not easy. It's like, the, it's like you know, you feel like sometimes like Bilbo Baggins, like, like too little butter spread over too much bread. <laughs> but the Lord can keep our cups full and the Lord can help us to guard space with our wives and with our kids. Please pray for us. So we see there's much overlap in terms of character requirements for pastors and deacons. But what about the differences in their job descriptions and corresponding competencies? Well, I think it's interesting because for, uh, for pastors, for overseers, there's only a single competency mentioned in this passage that they be able to teach. And I think this gives us insight that teaching is one of their primary responsibilities. But there's an extra hint given about their office in the title overseer. This title points to their leadership and governance in the local church. That's why later on in the letter in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul praises pastors who rule well, exercising their strength for the benefit of the community and not for themselves. And these two emphases on teaching and governing, to these two emphases, we could also add pastoring and caring for the flock of God. That's what it talks about in Acts 20. And in 1 Peter 5. So the role of the presbyter, the pastor, the priest, whatever you want to call it, is to teach, to govern, and to pastor. Now this doesn't mean that all mature Christians who are able to teach are called to be pastors. Maturity and teaching are necessary but not sufficient conditions of pastoral ministry. There are many people in the body, in this body, who will likely have these qualifications who won't feel called. But according to John Stott, there are three biblical conditions for stepping into pastoral ministry. He says the first is that a person be called by God. The second, that they have the desire, the inner aspiration. They're not doing it under compulsion, but willingly, as Peter talks about. And third, that there be a conscientious screening by the church as to whether they fulfill these kinds of requirements. In fact, you may or may not know that Peter Labar is in, dis in a discernment process right now for the priesthood. And Tanner is in a discernment process right now for the diaconate. Pray for them. Pray for those who are helping them to discern this call. 
Pray that the Lord of the harvest might call some of their peers to join them in aspiring to these noble callings. But what about deacons? What do they do? Again, there's a hint built into the name. Deacon means servant, simply. And a deacon is one who serves tables. They serve behind the scenes or they assist somebody else in their leadership. We also, we also learn from the example of the seven in Acts 6 that deacons serve as go-betweens between the needs of the community and the needs of the church, the resources of the church. So that's another thing we see for deacons historically. And while teaching is not a primary responsibility for a deacon, Paul does say in verse 9, as Sarah quoted, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they got to be people who really believe this stuff. And for this reason, if they're called to teach, they can be relied upon to be faithful because they hold the mysteries with a clear conscience. So the deacon serves in practical ways, assists the pastor, is a go-between for the needs of the community, and holds the faith with sincerity. As we try to wrap our minds around the roles of pastors and deacons, allow me to give an imperfect analogy using Frodo and Sam's relationship in The Lord of the Rings. I didn't mean to draw a second Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Just happens. But but it's just for you. Um, So in this analogy, uh, Frodo is like the priest and Sam is like the deacon. So think about it. Frodo's mission was to destroy the ring. Right, that was his mission, to bring the ring to Mordor and destroy it. And Sam's mission was sort of the same, but it was a little different. His mission was to help Frodo with Frodo's mission. Right, does that make sense? So Frodo carries the ring, and Sam carries the knapsack with all the lembas bread and the maps. Right? And uh, Frodo was the spokesperson when they met strangers on the road, whereas Sam was a trusted advisor to Frodo who knew the journey they had gone on. When they reached critical points of decision, do we go over this mountain or through it? Do we go through the, the, back, the black gate or through the hidden passage? The buck stopped with Frodo in making the decision, but Sam stuck with him. So in a sense, Sam's role is a secondary role. It's a meek role. It's a helpmate role, like a deacon. But we all know that Frodo wouldn't have got far without Sam. And in the end, Sam is no less responsible for the destruction of the ring. He's no less the hero. In fact, I feel like sometimes it's like, he's the real hero. In fact, at one point he says, now I'm getting amens. We need to get our priorities straight here. So, in fact, there's one point where he says, come, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you. But I can carry you! And he hoists Frodo on his shoulders and carries him up the mountain. Now, if a deacon is a helper and not the overseer or the authoritative teacher of doctrine, the question arises, is it biblical for women to serve as deacons? Some of you guys might be mad at me for even bringing up this question. And if you have further questions about it, Please do talk to me, but I also point you to the message from last week, which was even a trickier text. But to this question, I I think the answer is yes. And let me give you three reasons. You'll have to follow me closely here. First, in Romans 16.1, Paul commends Phoebe as a deacon of the church. 
Now, this word can be translated servant, as it is here in ESV, um, although most translations opt for deacon. And I think that's the better translation for the next reason, which is that um, women deaconesses begin to appear very shortly after the time of the New Testament. We begin to hear about them. And uh, this office, which, which especially um, involved a lot of ministry to other women, uh, was especially important in the East, in the Eastern Church. And I, I think the fact that you see this office in operation so early on in church history is a help. It's helpful for us. That's a that's a helpful way to clear up ambiguities in the in the biblical text. Like, is this talking about women deacons? There's several times where it's not, not quite clear. Well, the thing is, is that these this early, the early church had less cultural distance between themselves and the New Testament, right? And so sometimes if you see these kinds of practices, it gives you a clue as to how you can read the word. All right, we've, we've all had uh, a lot more years to innovate and deviate. So finally, um, there's evidence of women deacons in 1 Timothy 3 itself. Now, usually, um, I like the ESV translation, but on this passage, I think it really falls short. In the first place, the Greek word gune, uh, translated as wives in verse 11, you can see the little um, footnote, can also be translated simply as women. Furthermore, the word there, as in their wives, doesn't actually occur in the Greek text. It's an interpolation. So, the ter- so, so uh, this verse can actually be translated, likewise, women, and then give a bunch of other requirements for the diaconate, right? Mm-hmm. Second, we notice that the word likewise in Greek has already been used in verse 8 to, to denote like a categorical change between pastors and deacons, right? Mm. Is it not possible that another categorical change is being mentioned here between male deacons and women deacons? I think it's very possible. And third, if this is really about their wives, it's confusing why the section about overseers, which assumes that the overseers were for the, will for the most part be married, why doesn't that section, which, actually, which is actually longer, not include a corresponding section about their wives? Right? Is it perhaps because verse 11 refers to women deacons, whereas there was no such thing as women overseers? I think that's the most likely reading. And that's why on the whole... I find the case for women deacons or deaconesses to be the more compelling, both for biblical and historical reasons. Now, if you'd like to read more on this topic, I want to highly recommend a book to you called Man and Woman in Biblical Perspective by a guy named James Hurley. And uh, Hurley is both a Ph.D. in New Testament from Cambridge University, which is John and Sarah's alma mater, and a Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy from FSU which is many of your own. <laughs> and most importantly, I find him to be an honest reader of the text whose intuitions to me seem cross-shaped, servant-shaped. Um, and he places himself under the authority of Scripture as a steward, not as a judge over it. Now, someone might ask, if women can serve as deacons, then why can't they just serve as pastors? And really, I think this question is answered by the text itself as we read carefully from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Last week, we looked at the text from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
So it's not surprising that Paul doesn't include women in his discussion of the pastoral office, which by necessity includes authoritative teaching of doctrine and exercising governance over men in the church. Now, as we contextualize this passage for our culture, I think for a variety of reasons, it doesn't impinge in the same way on other types of ministry, on female campus ministers who are seeking to disciple 19 and 20 year olds or reach out to niche student groups. I don't think it applies in the same way to women on the frontiers of foreign mission or women who are trying to reach out evangelistically to their male neighbors. I don't think it applies to gifted women who are blessed by their male pastors to lead a class or to occasionally preach in the church. But I do think, based on clear scripture and history, and I gave many more last week, that this prohibition clearly applies to the idea of women taking up priestly or pastoral office in the church of God. This is simply off limits for what Paul would cite as creational reasons. That's what we see in this passage, creational reasons. And I take comfort that like three quarters of the bishops in the Anglican Church of North America agree with me on this topic. And even my own bishop and dear friend, whom I disagree with slightly on this topic, <laughs> is very gracious and moderate on it and is really wrestling and willing to listen. We have had several good conversations about it. But in general, the purpose of the church is to restore creational order, not to nullify it. Right? That's what J.I. Packer said, as I quoted him last week. Recent scholarship from a survey of Greek literature demonstrates that the word authority here used in 1 Timothy 2.12, which is used only here in the New Testament, should not be understood as usurping authority from a man. There are many instances of this term throughout Greek literature, um, and it's always just a generic term for exercising authority, exercising authority over a man in this case. So the problem is not an ambitious stealing of man's authority, but the sheer distortion of creational order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, continues Paul in verse 13, referencing the creational headship of man who was given responsibility as the firstborn. And Adam exercised his authority rightly in Genesis 2.23 through the naming of woman who was created as a helper fit for him. Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on to Genesis 3 stating, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here he refers to the consequences of the creational order being out of whack. So when... Satan isolated Eve and tempted her. He reversed the creation order. So it was Satan, Eve, and Adam. Right? The original creation order was God, Adam, and Eve. And we see that God doesn't like this. That God doesn't go with this. By the fact that the first person he confronts when he finds out what happened is Adam. He says to him, where are you? I think it's a sad indictment of the sinfulness of men that over the course of history, so many have abused their God-given authority, lording it over the church, making victims of their wives. And if that's frustrating to you, if you have a sense of righteous indignation about that, I just want to say you can be sure that the day is coming when all such men will once again have to stand before their creator and judge and he will say to them, where are you? 
Because oppression is not the way of Jesus. According to Jesus, leadership in the church involves washing one another's feet. It involves being willing to drink the cup of self-sacrifice that Jesus drank. And according to Paul, leadership in the home involves loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Either way, God's plan in Christ is not to nullify, it's not to nullify male leadership, but to restore it to the sacrificial love that should have typified it from the beginning. So whether we're talking about men and women or deacons and pastors, our attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking on the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of leadership in the kingdom of God. That's the way of leadership in the household of God. That's the way of leadership in the Christian household. May God give us grace to have that shape, that cruciform shape, be ours in this church and in his universal church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.